0: Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 20 is uh, where we will be, 20 to 23. this, As Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Can I just stop real quick? As much as we've been talking about, as much as we talk about our Father, Jesus Christ, Messiah, coming to restore all of creation from sin, I want to make sure that we understand that it's not just sin out there that He came to reconcile and to forgive, but it's also sin in our hearts. Let's not get that twisted, okay? I know that, that, that it, is, it is absolutely biblical to be passionate about ridding the world of sin out there. But let's not forget that he came to forgive sin in here. And to reconcile us to God. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him. Everybody say this together. Ready? Emmanuel. Which means God with us. If there's one word that sums up Christmas, it's this word, Emmanuel. God with us. Three words in English, eight letters. Emmanuel. Theologians and scholars and pastors have spent some of them their entire lives just meditating and reflecting on this one word. It was said of John Wesley that he said on his deathbed, and the best of all is God with us. God with us. Three simple and yet profound words. I'm we'll to spend a moment reflecting on that today. God with us. Simple and yet profound an entire lifetime to uncover God with us. What I want to do today is talk about those three words and then give you a challenge and a comfort and then we'll sing and respond to our Savior today. First is Jesus is God with us. He's God with us. One of the things I love is talking to a lot of my non-Christian friends who are skeptics or who are trying to discover Christianity. And it's amazing that I still meet people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Great teacher, philosopher, revolutionary, but Jesus never claimed to be God, to which I very gently and firmly push back and go, have you read the New Testament? Have you read his very own words? Because Jesus said nothing but claim that he was God. Over and over and over and over again. Not a teacher, not a philosopher, not a revolutionary, God. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 9. These are some some examples because we don't have enough time to go follow them. Some men brought to him a paralytic, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, for your your sins are forgiven. Over and over again in the New Testament, the gospel, Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And just think for a moment, common sense tells you that you could only forgive someone's sins if those sins are against you. You don't forgive someone's sins that has nothing to do with you but someone else. And when Jesus says over and over again, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, he is making an extraordinary claim. He's saying that all sins are really against me. And the only person that could claim that our sins against me is someone who is creator. who created and made everything on earth, as Will's was read in Psalm 24. And so owns it all, is master and lord over it all. And Jesus is saying, any sin over anything that I am lord over is directly a sin against me. And then he says gems like this all the time, Matthew chapter 11. <laughs> no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except The son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Now, some of you are familiar with New Testament. Just kind of read passages like this and you move on. Think for a moment about, think for a moment about the extraordinary claim that Jesus is making. First of all, he says, no one knows the father except the son. He is making an extraordinary claim to have absolute exhaustive knowledge of God. He is basically saying, when you compare the way I know God the father, you don't know God the father. Now think for a moment about the extraordinary claim of this. We all know God in a limited way. You know God. I know God. But Jesus is saying, listen, the way that I know God, the absolute exhaustive way that I know God, you don't know him. And the only one who can make such a claim to know God exhaustively completely, the only one who can make a claim to know an infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God is someone who is also and infinite, eternal, powerful God. That's actually not even the end of it. It's what he says before that's, woo! He says, no one knows the Father except the Son. But he also says, no one knows the Son except the Father. Think for a moment. No one knows the Son except the... He's saying, no one knows me. No one knows me except God. Come on now. No one knows me except God. The only person who is capable of knowing me, an infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God, is someone who is also an infinite, eternal, all-knowing, powerful God. Then, one more, one more, and then we'll move on. Jesus says to a bunch of religious leaders, this claim, before Abraham was, I am. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, Jesus didn't struggle with bad grammar. He, he wasn't saying before everyone well, as I was. He is intentionally invoking the divine personal name of God. It's the name that God gave to Moses when God calls Moses. Moses says, God, you ask me to deliver them. What should I tell them? Who sent me? And God says, Tell them, I am has sent you, the divine personal name of God. That's why the religious leaders approach him to stone him when Jesus said that. Why? Stoning was the penalty for blasphemy. Let's make no mistake about this. And this is overlooked. These are all Jews who believe that Jesus was God. If there's one group of people on the face of the planet, who were the least likely to believe that Jesus was God were the Jews. The Jews considered God so holy, so lofty, that they'd even pronounce or even spell his name so the thought of a human being claiming to be God was absolutely inconceivable and yet they all came to believe he was God and gave his life for it and then there was this his own family came to believe that he was God his brother Dan, you're tracking with me come on, come on you can fool people, you can't fool your family You can't fool your siblings. James, half-brother of Jesus, not only came to believe that Jesus was God, but became one of the more prominent leaders in the early church and died as a martyr right around 65 AD. How is it conceivable that all these Jews, for whom believing that a human being claiming to be God was absolutely outside the categories, overcame their cultural, intellectual barriers to believe that he was god i love what c.s lewis said he said the reason why i believe in christianity because nobody is insane enough crazy enough to actually come up with it let me ask you a question i know on days like this there are folks who've come with other folks in our church and you're wrestling with christianity let me ask you something do you kind of go, well, believing that Jesus is God. People back then believed it because, you know, people back then believed things like that. That's intellectually dishonest. People back then struggled just as much, if not more than you, to believe that a human being was God. Challenge. If Jesus really is God, if Jesus really is God, what is the only proper response? I'm going to geek out a little bit here this morning. I'm going to nerd out. Is that Okay. Is that okay? All right, all right. I thought this would be appropriate since Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars is apparently uh, it's shown in the theaters. (laughs) I love some of the writings of King David, who was a shepherd, who had a lot of time out in the fields. King David wrote some of the most beautiful psalms. And listen to one of the psalms that he wrote. Psalm 83. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? Beautiful psalms like this. So this is what I imagine David was looking at, okay? Uh, Does this look familiar? Next slide, please. What is this? This is the earth. It's a beautiful little thing, the earth. As much as you think the earth is beautiful, did you know that you could fit over a million earths, a million of these suckers in the sun? Let me show you a picture of the sun. Ah, the sun. Beautiful, beautiful. The sun though, for those of you science uh, buffs, sun's just a medium star. It's not even one of the biggest stars. Just a medium star. Not anywhere near big as a super uh, super giant star called the Antares. I think this is how you pronounce it. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Antares. Let me show you something. 50 million of our suns could fit inside the Antares. You know what the Antares is? Look at your lower left-hand corner. Next slide. You see that bright red thing? 50 million of our suns could fit inside there. Let me keep going. And Antares, right there, just leave it there, is one of a billion stars. Think for a moment. It's that one, 50, 50 million stars, one of a billion stars in what's called, next slide please, the Milky Way Galaxy. Lynn, are you tracking with me today? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I know. I know. Just a billion Milky Way galaxy. And you, look, you and I look at that and go, wow, that's, that's enormous. That's huge. That's huge. Now, the Milky Way galaxy, a cluster of galaxies. Next slide, please. Here's a cluster of galaxies. This is called the Virgo galaxy. A cluster of galaxies. A cluster of galaxies. First of all, I don't even know how to take pictures like this. You know? I just looked on the website, on the internet. I'm like, how do they take pictures of this? Does anybody know? Okay. These are, these are, this is one cluster of galaxies called Virgo. Let me tell you how far the nearest Galaxy is to the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, just one. One galaxy, the nearest galaxy to our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Next slide, please. The galaxy nearest to the Milky Way galaxy is the Sagittarius dwarf elliptical galaxy, which is about 80,000 light years away. Does anybody know how many miles one light year is? Next slide, please. A single light year equals six trillion miles. And the nearest galaxy to our galaxy, Milky Way, is, I don't, how how big is that? (laughs) It's got 48 and 16 zeros. Just, just. My head once exposed. Just, just think for a moment, think for a moment, think for a moment. This is just one galaxy, one galaxy that's closest, nearest to our galaxy, one galaxy closest to our galaxies. Next slide, and the last slide, please. Scientists estimate that there may be over 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Next slide, please. That is the closest picture that scientists could take of what this potentially could look like. Is anybody's head ready to explode? Do you know what Isaiah says? And yes, he's using metaphor. Next slide. Who has measured the waters In the hollow of his hand. And check this out. Or with the breadth of his hand marked the universe. Isaiah is saying, this is God. The universe, he has marked it with his thumb and with his pinky. Let me ask you something. Is that's Jesus, God, with us? Does it make any sense to go, you know, I ought to make a little room in my heart for Jesus? Does it make any sense to go, you know, Jesus, um... You would be an awesome consultant or a personal assistant. I've got, some, I've got some advice that I need. Can you, does it make any sense? This is the reason why when you look in the Gospels, I hope you're following this morning. If this is God, he's marked the universe with his thumb and his pinky. If this is God with us, if this is God with us, this is the reason why anybody who encounters Jesus in the Gospels is put in motion. You never see anybody that Jesus encounters, truly encounters, go, you know, that's an incredible lecture. Let me think about that. Anytime Jesus encounters somebody, they're put in motion. How? They see him and they're so angry and so furious at him, they rush at him to throw him off the cliff. Or they're terrified of him saying, depart from me, get out of here, or they fall down on their faces and say, command me. If this is who God is, if this is Jesus, God with us, does it make any sense for us to go? You know what? I think maybe I should make him a priority in my life. You know what? Maybe I should make room in my life for Jesus. If this is who Jesus is, the only proper response, as C.S. Lewis said, is to be so angry at him because he knew he wasn't God and he intentionally lied. Or he thought he was God and he was completely out of his mind. So you fear him. Or you fall down and you say, command me, Lord. Command me. So the thing about the, the birth narrative that we often overlook is this. Do you notice? Joseph is not allowed to name the child. Do you notice that? Joseph is not allowed to name the, name the child. Why? In that patriarchal culture, it was absolutely the father's right to name their children. It showed complete authority over that child. And yet the angel comes and says, you don't get to name him. Why? Jesus was the first baby ever born that was older than his parents. You know what the angel is saying? Jesus is saying, you don't name him. He names you. You don't manage him. He manages you. Church, has the truth of God with us hit you this Christmas? I meet people all the time and so say, you know, I'm interested in Christianity, but man, if I become a Christian, am I going to have to give that up? Am I have to stop going there? If I become a Christian, am I going to have to break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend because, you know, they're not really big on faith? If I become a Christian, am I going to have to be radically generous with my money because, you know, I kind of like spending on myself. Do you know what they're doing? They're trying to name him. You don't name him. He names you. I see Christians all the time who go, I'll obey God if, I'll serve God if, if there are any conditions to our obedience. We're trying to name him. You don't name him. He names you. We don't manage him. He manages us. Amen? Jesus is God with us. The only proper response to this Jesus is to fall down and saying Lord God King command me command me what's the comfort it is because Mary said how is this going to happen that we get the following words for nothing is impossible with God is this good news Come on, is this good news? For some pinky. And we're looking there going, God, are there sins in my life that you could possibly help me overcome? Church, church, church. We serve a Savior who says he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He finishes what he starts do you have people in your life? Come on. Do you have people in your life you're looking at right now going, God, I've been praying for their salvation for years. Can you say it with me? For nothing is impossible with God. Do you look at the world around you and go, God, I live in a city that's broken, systems that are broken, evil and injustice all around me. Could anything, say it with me. Come on now. For nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe it? Jesus is God with us. Secondly, Jesus is God with us. If Jesus is God with us, brings a challenge and brings that that, that, that conviction, this is the comforting part. Jesus is God with us. I've searched for analogy to best explain this all of these years, and I think I finally found one. Jesus is God with us. If you've ever been in a relationship, marriage, boyfriend, girlfriend, parent, child, at some point you get into a conversation goes something like this. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's your fault. And you go back and forth, back and forth, and the relationship is a tearing and freeing. Why? Because neither of you will give an inch. Nobody's willing to make concessions. Nobody's willing to put down their defenses. Your fault. It's And then at some point, it goes like this. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. You're right. It's my fault. It's. What'd you say? It's my fault. And sometimes the piling goes on for a while, which is really hard. If you're the one that said, oh, it's my fault. But at some point, what happens in that relationship? You all know. That relationship begins to heal the relationship begins to deepen and comes back. Why? Because one of you finally put down your defenses. One of you finally made concession. One of you finally said, you're 80% wrong because you're exaggerating, you're making up stuff. But you know what? There's parts of what you're saying that's true. By the way, this is the hardest lesson in marriage, FYI. There's parts of what you're saying is true. So I'm going to take that part and I'm going to admit. I'm going to admit that I, I, I will let down my defenses. I will make myself vulnerable. Why would anybody do that? You know. In any relationship, there's a part of you that says, you know what? I want you back. I want this relationship back. I don't want it to continue to fray. So I'm going to let down my defenses and one of the verbal blows land." Do you know why that works? Do you know why that works? And I'm still chewing on this. That works because you and I are made in the image of someone who gave the ultimate expression of this part of his nature at Christmas. When the infinite, eternal, all knowing, all powerful God became a baby. Christmas, the ultimate expression, when the infinite, eternal, all powerful God became vulnerable, let down his defenses. And became a baby. You hear me say all the time, all the time, you can't, you can't heal a relationship, you can't deepen a relationship, you can't be in a relationship if your posture is, I'm never going to be vulnerable, I'm never going to give my heart away, I'm never going to let my defenses down, I'm never going to get hurt. And in that posture, your heart will never get broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only way to intimacy, the only way to healing in any relationship is that one person says, I choose to become vulnerable. I choose to let my defenses down. Do you realize what happened at Christmas? God became breakable. Think about that for a moment. God... God became fragile. God, who appeared to Job in a tornado and a whirlwind. God, who appears to Abraham as a blazing furnace. God, who appears to Moses in a pillar of fire, becomes a baby. A baby. Christmas is the ultimate expression of someone. Creator God and saying, I'm going to let my defenses down and become vulnerable to the question, why? To get you back. To get me back. The creator God lets down his defenses and becomes fragile, breakable, killable. So that someday... He would be able to reconcile lost, sinful humanity. Is this good news? So for those of us who go, God, he is infinite, eternal, absolutely. Let that hit you when you think about, but this God became with, with, with. He becomes a single cell. I I tell you what this means among a number of things. There are some of you sitting right now. You have relationships that are completely fraying. Why? Because you refuse to let your defenses down. You refuse to drop your defenses. You refuse to become vulnerable. You are shouting and angry and going at each other. How will their relationship, particularly many of you who go home for Christmas, hello? How will that relationship ever heal, deepen? It requires someone saying, I dropped the defenses. I will become vulnerable. Where do you get the power to do that? Because it's so hard, Peter. Of course it is. When you realize that creator God dropped his defenses for you. And creator God became vulnerable for you. And you don't need uh, the honor of it and the affirmation. Look at the honor of what Christ did for you. Look at the affirmation of what Christ did for you. God with. Here's the challenge. If this is how far He went to be near you, what is it costing you to be near Him? Come on, Michael. What is it costing? If he went this length to these lengths to be near, to be with, I'm going, I'm, I'm, you can't get up 30 minutes earlier? You don't have time? You're too busy? Are you kidding me? Are you with me this morning? Come on, if he. Creator God, thumb, pinky, thumb, pinky, thumb, pinky. That God becomes vulnerable and weak. What is it costing you? I guarantee you whatever costing you to be near him will never ever equal anything he did to come near to you. You want to hear a challenge for All Some of you came like, I thought I was going to hear some warm fuzzy message. What the heck is this? I'll tell you what this is, claw, scratch, do whatever you can to be near him. Make a commitment in 2016 to say, I will do whatever it takes. Claw, scratch, kneel. I'll do whatever it takes to be near you, to be with you. Look what you did to be near me. And I can't get up a little earlier. You hearing me? What are you willing to do in 2016? Is anybody still sitting there going, well, you know, I don't think it was that big a deal. (laughs) I can't help you then. I'm almost losing my voice. Anybody here this year saying, you know what, Peter? Never thought of it like that. How could it be drudgery for me to be near him? How could it be work to be near him? How could I think, oh, it's such a big sacrifice to be near him? He did that to be near me. Here's a comfort. You know what the comfort is? Man, this year's been really, really hard. It's been really hard. There's been a lot of loss, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering in the life of our church family. And many of you know what other folks have gone through, what I've been through. So this is particularly acutely personal for me. See, the comfort of God being with us is this, and I say it all the time, and sometimes I think you guys hear it one ear out the other. When you ask Christianity, when you ask the essence of Christianity, why is there evil and still suffering and pain in the world? We don't know. There is no clear-cut answer for why there still is. But we always say this, right? We know what the answer isn't. See, here's the thing. When you've been through some really hard things, it feels lonely. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's really lonely. And people try and come and try and, you know, be there with you and encourage you. And they say all kinds of stuff and you're like, shut because you just feel like nobody understands. And then, and then what happens? And then you meet somebody who's gone through everything that you've gone through. The exact same thing you've gone through, if not worse. And there's something powerful about that. Do you know why? The two most powerful words in the English language is the words, me too. me too. And when you meet someone, if you've lost your father through cancer, who lost their father through cancer, and they say, me too, our response is, you too? You understand, don't you? You know what it's like? I do. Do you know what Christianity says? We not only have a God who took on humanity. He was born in a manger, lived a life of poverty, betrayed by his best friends, stabbed, tortured, and killed. This is scandalous. We have in Christianity, no other religion says this, a savior who says, I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like to be betrayed by my best friends. I know what it's like to be stabbed. I know what it's like to be killed. Christianity has the audacity to proclaim a suffering Savior. This entire year for me, I've had to lean into this truth saying, God, I may not know this side of heaven, why there's evil and suffering and pain in the world. But I lean into the truth that I know what the answer is not. And the answer is not you don't care. And the answer is not you're indifferent. And the answer is not you're remote. The answer, the answer that we're given is that he himself is so committed to ending evil, injustice, and pain, and suffering in this world that we have the only God among all the religions who himself came down and plunged himself into it so that someday he could end pain, suffering, evil, and injustice without ending us. And it's that truth that I lean into. That truth that I lean into. And I sing, Lord, even as we sing, Come, Lord Jesus. I lean, even in the midst of mourning and pain, and find my hope there. Find my hope there. The last part God with. And I'm not going to lie, this is my favorite us. With us. And if you've been here for most of Christmases, you know that your pastor loves talking about this part. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. There were shepherds living on the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Talked about this last Sunday. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. I love talking about this every Christmas. Do you know why? Because this text right here reveals to me the essence and the core of the Beautiful gospel that I love so much and proclaim and try to live in my life. Shepherds normally didn't keep their sheep out at night. They normally grazed them during the day and brought them back to their pens at night. And I've read extensively on the commentaries and what a lot of commentary and scholars will tell you is this. That this is not just any old sheep and these are not just any old shepherds. Because of what the text says here, these were sheep that were being sold to worshipers who were on their way to Jerusalem to make atonement for their sins. And these people, these shepherds, were essentially the ones that were in care of raising, birthing, feeding, taking care of sheep that people would buy on their way to Jerusalem temple to sacrifice them and atone for their sins. Now there are two... Rabbinical laws that they're them. Number one is that you couldn't graze thousands of sheep near the city, and the reasons are obvious. You don't want to be walking through an area where thousands of sheep have been grazing. Use your imagination, okay? But there was also a second rabbinic ban, and that was this: there were ceremonial laws that said you have to be ceremonially clean to be able to enter the temple and make atonement for your sins but as scholars point out these shepherds 24 7 days a week 365 days a year they're out in the wilderness caring for birthing sheep and they could never ever become ceremonially clean enough to go make atonement for their sins think of the irony think of the dilemma You're a shepherd. Your entire life, entire life, you're caring for sheep. And there's Jacob who comes by and says, How much for that sheep? Whatever the cost is, okay? Whatever the cost is. So an exchange takes place, and Jacob says, Thank you very much. And as that shepherd watches Jacob walk with the sheep, it occurs to him. Every single time. That guy could go and make atonement for his sins so he could know where he stands with God. But I can't. I'm not clean enough. I'm not ceremonially clean enough to make atonement for their sins. So think of the dilemma. Think of the irony. Here are the very same people caring for sheep that people buy so they can know where they stand with God, but you have no idea of where you stand with God because of the religious system and the rules of man. Church, does it matter to you at all that it was to that group of people that God comes and says, I want you to be the first to know that a Savior has been born. Somebody clapped. Wow, it's good news for two people. Doesn't make any difference. Think about this. See, you may sit here and you go, that's not an issue for me. I've been a Christian all my life. But I guarantee you, there are people here who've grown up in church or not, who sit right now and go, I don't know where I stand with God. Peter, I do not know where I stand with God. And you go, why? They'll tell you, because I've done this. I've done that. i have in the church. I don't pray. Da, da, da. What they're literally saying is, they could be atoned for their sins, but I can't. I'm not ceremony clean enough. Here's the good news of the gospel, and I will preach this until the last day of my life here on earth. It is to them God says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem and get clean first to come and receive my Savior. You believe and you trust me. The essence of the gospel is not perform, do, earn. Oh, oh, the essence of the gospel is this. Why did he become man? He had to live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Because Jesus lived the perfect life and earned the blessing that such a life deserves. And he died the perfect death, suffering on our behalf. The Bible says when repentant sinners turn towards Jesus and believe in him, all the blessings that Jesus earned for a perfect life is given to us and of the punishment that he suffered is taken away. So that when we believe and trust in him, Not only are we no longer under condemnation forever, but we're adopted into the family of God. And right now, right now, right now, if you're in Christ, he has so clothed us, his righteousness, so clothed us with his beauty, that when God looks at us right now, looks at you right now, he sees a son or a daughter, holy, righteous, blemishless, and blameless. Is that good news to anybody? See, see, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Almost done. The challenge is, for many of us, we don't understand that the gospel produces joy. The word gospel literally means proclamation of joy. If you understand the gospel, the Bible says it produces in you joy. We follow the one who said, and I have said these things to you so that what? You may have joy and joy to the full. I'm going to say it right here, right now. A joyless Christian is an oxymoron. There is no worse witness to people who don't know Jesus than a joyless Christian. Can I get an amen? But has the gospel penetrated your heart? This Christmas, God with Oh, us. Has it, has it produced in you joy? How do you answer the question when somebody says to you, are you a Christian? Do you go, I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) It's like half of y'all this morning. Are you a Christian? I'm trying. Or, or, or gospel proclamation joy. When somebody says, are you a Christian? You say, yeah, can you believe it? Me. Me, I'm a Christian. Me, I was blind. But now I see. I was lost. And he came and found me. Can you believe it? I'm a Christian. Is this in your heart? Christian. Is this the gospel message that has penetrated you? Or to the question, are you a Christian? Does it no longer excite you? Does it no longer impassion you? Does it no longer light a fire under you? Do you need to go back to the gospel again and again and again? Of course you do. Of course you do. Of course you do. Of course I do. It's your attitude this morning. Oh, man, if I wasn't a Christian. Oh, man, if I wasn't following Jesus. There's so many things I can do. If I want not a Christian, there's so many things i love to do. I can't. Do you look at Christianity as a straitjacket that's keeping you from living the life you really want to live? Then you don't understand the gospel. When you understand the gospel, you recognize true freedom is found in Christ and living for Christ alone. Anybody sitting here saying, oh, the gospel, the good news. He talked about it all the time. My question to you is, has it exploded in joy? Oh, is your joy life circumstantial? Is your joy life circumstantial? Christian joy is not bubbly personality. Christian joy is not positive thinking. Christian joy is not when life is good, I'm in a good mood. Christian joy is inextinguishable by circumstances. Do you hear me? Christian joy is inextinguishable. Why? Jesus says rejoice in the Lord. There's a kind of joy that comes that gets brighter as stars get brighter, as the darkness gets darker. The light of Jesus' face gets brighter as the circumstances of our lives get darker. Goodness gracious. Yeah, your pastor's preaching to himself this morning. I just, is that okay, Susie? Because I had somebody come up to me, someone who loves me like three months ago, and they said, Pastor Peter, you look so like overwhelmed. I am. You look like you're under so much like breath. I am. (laughs) E or I am. That sister probably didn't even know. It was right after Sunday. I was sweating, profusely preaching. When she walked away, it was like a Holy Spirit soared to my heart. And the question was, Peter, where's your joy? Is your joy in me? Do you know what you have in me? Do you know what's promised in me? Do you know what you'll never lose as your inheritance in me? Oh. How's your joy life Proclamation of joy. Here's the comfort, you ready? Comfort, you ready? The comfort is that the words of Jesus not, come to me all you who perform well and I'll give you rest. Come to me all you who obey the rules really, really good and I'll give you rest. Come to me all you, he doesn't say that, he says what, come to me all you who are what? Weary and heavy laden. See, I try to break through all the warm fuzzies during Christmas because your pastor's kind of like that. Even as we sing with candles, silent night. I'm going to have a frown on my face. Um, (laughs) So get used to that because you're not going to see it while we're singing. Do you know why I break through it? Because here's the thing. What you needed is not someone to come and go, be a good person. Jesus is our hope. What you needed is like medicine and medicine cabinet. And that's the gospel. Do you know why? We are weary. We are heavy laden. Do you know why? Do you know why? Listen, I'm almost done. Do you know why? It's guilt. I know some people in this world, your friends will go, no, that's low self-esteem. That's bad for you. Low self-esteem is bad. No, no, no. It's not low self-esteem. It's guilt. You and I know we've messed up. We've failed. And here's your entire life, my entire life, summarized. Our entire life is an attempt to make up and pay for our failures. Some of you are trying to make up and pay for your failures by working really, really hard. Some of you, it's by achieving. Some of you, it's by good deeds. Some of you, it's by even hurting yourself. Some of you, it's our effort to go, I'm going to pay for this failure. i got to make up for this failure and we try and we try and we try and we try problem is we can't pay can we no no matter how much we do we can't pay for our failures I- care how successful you are. You'll never be able to pay for your failures with success. I don't care how much of a good person you are, how much ministry you do. You will never pay for your fails ministry. I don't care what you, you can't pay for it. being a good mother, being a good father, being a good boss. You can't pay for it. What's the good news of Christmas and the gospel? Jesus paid it all. Jesus comes and says, I paid for all your failures. So you could rest. So you could rest. So you could. 2016. It's not going to be one long year's worth of trying to pay for and make up for my insecurity and low self-worth. Make up for the mistakes that I've made. by do. Rest. He paid it. I'm gonna be the best mom and the best. uh, I'm gonna help people. minister. Jesus, hate it all. Jesus, hate it all. Jesus, Jesus hate it. Emmanuel, God, with us, pray with me, church. I want to speak specifically, really quick, really, really quick, to anybody, anybody, Anybody in here who doesn't know where they stand with God. I'm talking to you, my brother, my sister, who walked in here this morning. Because of where you've been, what you've done, you don't know. Where you stand with God. And some people have told you that what you need to do is you need to be a better person, go to church, pray more, read the Bible, a list of things. The good news of Christmas, my brother, my sister, is that he paid it all. He did it all. for you and for me it's by believing and trusting in that finished work that salvation is given to you right where you are take a moment if that's you if that's you this morning to say, God, I receive it. I receive it. I receive the good news of the gospel. And then to the rest of us who know Jesus as this truth Hate you. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Is he Lord? Is he Lord? Are you scratching, clawing, doing whatever it takes to be near him? Whatever it takes, God, I want to be with you. I want to be near you. I'm praying this morning as we about to sing is restore unto me the joy of your salvation anybody else need to pray that this morning Yeah, restore unto me the joy of your salvation say that if that's your prayer restore unto me the joy of your salvation restore unto me the joy of your